We're in John chapter 20, verse 24 to 29 as we make our way through John's Gospel. We're nearing the end. And were it not for a little trip to Romania next week, we would be uh, finishing here in a few weeks. But we'll have to take a break for that. John chapter 20, verse 24 to 29. Let me read that text and we'll pray. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them, that is with the other disciples, when Jesus came to them. And so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand, uh, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Father, now this is your word. Would you, would you give us an attention to what you have placed here for us this morning? Would you drive away all the things that would distract us, all the word thoughts about later, all the little things that buzz in our minds, and would you cause us for these next few minutes to hear Jesus speaking not only to Thomas, but through Thomas to us? Would you awaken what needs to be awakened within us? Would you, would you cause faith to come where doubt and unbelief have brought shadows? Lord, speak. And enable us to hear with faith that which you have for us. For it is in Christ's name we do ask. Amen. So from the very beginning, the veracity, that is the truthfulness of the Christian faith, has centered on the resurrection of Christ. If it didn't happen, it's all a lie. Don't believe it. But if it did happen... You're a fool for not believing it. Because Jesus is either who He claims to be, the risen Lord of heaven and earth, to whom all owe their complete allegiance, or He's not. And the fact that He is risen from the dead shouts the fact that He is. Church, He is risen. That is not just an Easter confession. Right? That is our daily confession. And as we've seen, that, that conviction that Jesus had risen alive from the grave did not come to the apostles easily. When they first heard the news from Mary that early Easter morning, they refused to believe her. Nor did this belief in the resurrection gradually come about over time like some liberal theologians claim. You know, they... They just missed their dead master so much that they came up with these stories later on and only slowly convinced themselves and others that they were true. No. It took the shock of actually seeing Christ alive to jumpstart their dead hearts into faith. As we saw last time. 
But now we learn that one of them, Thomas, was not even with them on that Easter Sunday evening when Christ made His presence known. Verses 19 to 23. That is going to provoke a crisis of faith because Thomas refuses to believe that Jesus is now alive. Even with the other disciples telling him, he refuses to believe their testimony. Uh, We often call this man doubting Thomas, but really it goes deeper than mere doubt. Thomas has hardened his heart into unbelief from which Christ must come and rescue him. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. Let's begin there. Let's begin with this unbelief that is seen in the refusal of Thomas to believe the testimony of the apostles. Again, verse 24, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see him myself, put my hands in his wounds, I will never ever believe. Notice, in fact, the forcefulness of his statement. In Greek, it's it's what's in a strong double negative. Bad English, but really good Greek. That's how you make an emphasis. So he's not just saying, you know, I'm, I'm having a little trouble with my faith here, guys. This is an absolute refusal. It's a determination on his part. I will not never believe at all. I refuse, in fact, to believe no matter what you all say. And so, let's consider Thomas himself. Let's uh, think about who is he? Who is Thomas? We know just a little about him from the Gospels, mostly from John. We're told, first of all, that he is a twin. Um, That's his nickname, Didymus, uh, Twinsy, or something like that. Who the other twin was, we're never told, but... Twins were a bit of a mystery in the ancient world. You know, you have a child, because you don't have ultrasound or anything, you don't know what's coming. You have a child, and boom, out pops another, and it looks like the other one. And what's going on here? And there were even some cultures that would, that would actually kill the second one because it was just considered too strange for that to happen. Well, the Jews didn't do that, but they were, they, they were, they were themselves a little bit nonplussed by this whole thing. And so, the nickname sticks. Oh, he is one of those twins. We're also told he's one of the twelve. That is one of the original twelve disciples. So he's he's been with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. And apparently, he is also a deeply devoted follower of Christ. Earlier in John 11, uh, when Jesus announces to them that he's going back toward Jerusalem to Bethany, where they've just been trying to kill him, Thomas says, well, then let's go with him and we'll die too. You know, right? Thomas is willing to go, He's willing to take the risk because if that's where Jesus is going, well, that's where I'm going to be. It was Thomas who spoke up later in John 14 when Jesus is talking about the fact that he's about to leave them. He's he's leaving them, but he's preparing a place for them. And Thomas says in John 14, uh, verse 5, "But, But Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way there? And Jesus said to him, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know me, and that's enough. And so Thomas was a committed follower of Christ, ready to go anywhere with him. But the death of Jesus seems to have shattered his confidence. It's upended his faith. It's thrown everything into doubt. I mean, he just did not see this coming. 
Have you ever had that or something like it happen to you? Some terrible thing you didn't see coming, some massive disappointment that that caused you to begin to question everything that you believe. And so Thomas has suffered this great trauma and this trauma has thrown him into unbelief. So that second, we see here Thomas's unbelief. You see, here's a question we ought to be asking. Why wasn't he there that first time Jesus appeared to the apostles? I mean, surely he knew they were meeting. Surely the word had gone out. Surely he'd been invited. It's entirely possible that he simply refused to come. What's the point? Jesus is, after all, dead. And so now they come to him with these stories. We've seen the Lord. Christ is alive. And Thomas thinks, how can that be? Once again, we just have to grapple with the fact these are not gullible men. These are not people just itching to believe a resurrection. They're so ready to jump on it. No, it's in fact just the opposite. Thomas repeatedly rejects what they say. Uh, The word used in verse 25 uh, is in a tense that says that they kept telling him. There was a persistence to their testimony. It it pictures the fact that this was a bit of an argument. There's this ongoing conversation that lasts the entire week as they keep pressing him. Come on, Thomas, they say. We've seen him. He he showed us the marks in his hands. We saw the, the hole in his side. And Thomas responds, I don't care what you say you've seen. Unless I see it for myself and put my fingers in the marks of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. And and so this this is an obstinacy. Do we have any obstinate people here? Don't look at them, right? Unless it's yourself. But this isn't just a doubt. This This is determined unbelief. I want to make sure we see that. Doubt is one thing. Doubt is when you're still trying to figure it all out. Unbelief goes deeper. Because with unbelief, you're not even willing to consider the evidence. One writer says, Thomas was not unsure or puzzled, but stubbornly rejected the news of Jesus' resurrection. Leon Morris writes, He would not be persuaded by the combined testimony of all the rest of the apostolic band, He couldn't understand why all the apostles, sensible men whom he knew well, had accepted it. And no matter how stupid they had become, he was not going to follow their example. Remember, these are his friends. These are men that he has learned to trust these past three years. He should have believed them. Not only should he believe them because he knew them, but these are, as we saw last time, the very men Christ Himself has just commissioned to carry the news of the resurrection to the world. Do you remember that last time? A glance back at verse 21. When Jesus appeared that first time, He said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent Me, even so I am sending you. I'm sending you as My representatives. I'm sending you to take the news. Christ commissioned them to bear witness to His resurrection. That, by the way, is what makes them apostles. They're the ones, literally the word means to be sent in His authority as His ambassadors to carry His word with His authority. That's why we don't have apostles today. Because you have to have seen Jesus. You have to have been there in the room with Him. He has to have commissioned you to go do this. Christ sent them personally in His authority 
so that by refusing to believe them, he is actually refusing to believe Christ. By the way, the same is true with you. If you are persisting in unbelief, refusing to believe the testimony of the apostles, which is what we have in the New Testament, you are not just believing, disbelieving men, you are disbelieving the Christ, the God who sent those men. And so this is obstinacy. He says, I will never, never believe except on my own terms. He must come to me and prove himself. Which brings us to the next thing to see here, and that is that this unbelief of Thomas, this unbelief is confronted by the presence of the risen Christ. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be to you. By Jewish reckoning, eight days later is the way they would say one week later. Right? They counted the day you're sitting on. So th- this means a week later. So once again, it is the following Sunday. The, the Sunday following the resurrection day. So we're on Sunday. The apostles are all gathered together in this room, probably the same one as the week before. The doors are locked once again. And suddenly, Jesus steps into the room and says to them, Peace be with you. Boy, does that sound familiar at all? Look back in verse 19. The week before, it says on the evening of that day, the the Sunday, this first day of the week, uh, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, same words, peace be with you. See, I want you to see there's a repeat performance here. Jesus does exactly what he did the week before when Thomas was not there. And I just get the impression that all of this is for Thomas' sake. Christ has come just for him out of love for him. Just like we saw last time, there is not a word of rebuke here, though certainly by this point Thomas would deserve that. I mean... Jesus knows his obstinacy. He knows his confusion. He knows that he's got his heart and mind all bent and twisted up uh, into knots. Uh, That he's like a stubborn sheep that ran off and got tangled up in a thorn bush. But rather than leading with a reprimand, Jesus, the gentle shepherd, meets him with those same words of comfort and grace he had given to the others, Peace be with you. Hey, listen. Friend, let that challenge your view of Christ the Good Shepherd when He comes after a straying sheep. Oh, there's a place for rebuke. And there is indeed a place for reprimand. And Christ the wise shepherd knows how to give those two. But He also knows how to comfort and console the confused and the broken, especially when we get ourselves all bent up and twisted by some dilemma. And so notice... Jesus comes to him. Notice also where Christ comes to meet Thomas. He didn't come to him when Thomas was off by his own, isolating himself from other believers, refusing, as I think he was, to come. He came and made himself known to Thomas as he was gathered with these other believers. See, I don't want to press this too far as if all this is saying is, well, you ought to come to church. But there is something about the gathering of believers that helps us encounter the presence of the risen Christ. When you go off by yourself, 
to ruminate over your doubts and fears and disappointments, when you give in to that, unbelief grows. Don't be surprised by that, especially in a world where there's so many voices shouting that very thing into your ear. When you go off by yourself, unbelief grows, but as you gather with other saints to seek the presence of Christ, He comes and He begins to make Himself known to you. Doubt and fear begin to fade when believers come together. Faith is strengthened when we come, as Kyle said, and confess our faith together. That's why Hebrews urges us, Hebrews 10.24, let's consider then, brothers, how to stir each other up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, right? those who are ready to, to renounce their faith, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. And so I really do think there's something intentional here about the way Jesus meets him. That this is something we are supposed to see as we read this text. We need to understand again, the last thing you need to do when you are struggling with unbelief is run away from fellow believers. No, dear one, gather near. Come to the place where Christ has been seen before that you also might encounter Him. Uh, Alexander McLaren said this, he said, The worst thing that a man can do when unbelief and doubt and coldness shrouds his sky and blots out his stars is to go away and shut himself up with his own morbid and disturbing thoughts. The best thing that he can do is to go amongst his fellows. If the sermon does him no good, the prayers and praises and the sense of brotherhood from other believers will begin to help him. And so, as they are gathered together, on the Lord's Day, Christ comes among them. But then notice also, He comes directly and personally to Thomas. I love this. Verse 27, He enters the room and immediately turns to Thomas and says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. You know, it's almost like Jesus had heard Thomas back in verse 25. Which, of course, is the omnipotent Lord. He had. I really am amazed sometimes in all these years of being a pastor how reluctant we can be to honestly confess our doubts and fears to Christ. It's like we're almost afraid that we don't really want to let Him know what we're thinking. That we can't bring ourselves to, to tell Him we're struggling with, with this. Dear friend, He knows... It's no surprise to Him. He knows your doubts, your fears, your struggles. And so just grab them up and take them to Him. Run to Him freely with Him. Confess your need to Him directly. Confess to Him your troubles. Tell Him where you're struggling to believe. Tell Him where you're having problems. Let Him help you. Ask Him to help you. Right? He can take it. In fact, taking it is exactly what he's ready to do. Again, notice, notice his graciousness with Thomas here. He doesn't say to him, Oh, Thomas, you miserable disciple you. Why can't you just believe like these others? You know, away with you and all your silly questions. I'm tired of putting up with people like you. There's the door. Instead, he offers himself freely and says, Come here, Thomas. Come near. Look upon me, Thomas. Do you, do you need to have my love for you confirmed again? Well, then look and see. It's me. I'm here. Here are the marks of my love for you. 
in church in a very, very real way, Jesus says the same thing to us week after week when we gather. As we take the Lord's Supper each week, we see again uh, these symbols of Christ's body and blood. And Jesus is saying to us, look and see. I'm here. These are the marks of my love for you. No, we don't see Him in a physical body standing before us as Thomas did, but you see, that's not the point. We have the real presence of Jesus mediated to us through these symbols of His body and blood, through the preaching of His Word, through the faithful testimony of His disciples, through the presence of our brothers and sisters, both living and dead, confirming to us once again, Christ is alive. And so we have everything we need here and now as believers. We have everything we need to dispel unbelief and bring us into a renewed and solid faith. Do you see what that's what Jesus actually commands Thomas here? Look at his words right at the end of verse 27. Having shown himself to Thomas, he says to him, it's a command, do not disbelieve, but believe. Which we could translate like this. Stop your unbelief and become believing. Thomas moved from the one to the other. That there's a dynamism here in the language. It's really hard to bring, a, bring out, I think, in, in a lot of our translations. Jesus is commanding Thomas to make a move here, to be something else, to be something new, to move from unbelief to belief, from doubting to faithing, from being untrusting to trusting Christ. In other words, Thomas, drop your obstinacy. Stop looking for reasons to disbelieve. And look to me in faith. See who I am and respond to what you see. Because listen to me, that's what faith is. That's where faith is found. Faith is not a blind leap into the dark. Faith is a knowing leap toward Christ as He has revealed Himself, seeing and responding to Him. Romans 10, verse 8 and 9 says the Word, and that's the primary means through which we meet Christ now, is through His proclaimed Word. The Word is near you. This Word of the Gospel is in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the Word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is exactly what some of you here this morning need to do. You need to confess who Jesus is. You need to believe His faithful promise. Some of you need to stop monkeying around with unbelief and half-hearted commitment and put both feet down in Christ. Both feet fully and completely trusting Him based on His Gospel Word. Stop your unbelief and become believing, He says. Stop waiting for something else to happen. Stop waiting for a feeling. Stop waiting for an experience. And just confess and follow Christ. Which is the third thing we need to see this morning. And that is simply this. Unbelief is conquered. Unbelief is conquered where Christ is confessed and followed as Lord. 
Verse 28 and 29. Thomas make, uh, don't, Jesus commands, don't disbelieve, but believe. Thomas responds, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's kind of cool. Thomas just slingshots here from determined unbelief to a full-throated confession. My Lord and my God, he says. Notice, he doesn't even bother to stop and examine his wounds. He didn't stick his finger in anything. The presence of Jesus is enough. My Lord and my God, he confesses. What a confession. Did you see that this is a bold confession of Christ's deity? Thomas is seeing Him for the first time for who He really is. I once had a relative who had fallen under the influence of a cult and uh, he, he was trying to convince me that, you know, Thomas here is not actually calling Jesus God. He's saying, my Lord, to Jesus and then turning and saying, my God, to the Father. Well, that's utter nonsense. Thomas is suddenly overwhelmed for the first time by the reality of who Jesus is. My Lord and my God! Two titles found throughout the Old Testament, just read through it and you'll see them everywhere, that clearly identify Israel's God as the God. Genesis 2 verse 7 for instance, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so Thomas is confessing Christ to be that deity, that God who made and upholds all things. Maybe you remember this has actually been a major emphasis of John's Gospel from start to finish. Did you remember how we began with John's Gospel? Oh, so many months, a couple of years ago. John 1 verse 1. Let me just read it to you in case you need the reminder. In the beginning was the Word, and later he identifies that Word as Christ, the One who became in flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. So the first thing we're told about Jesus in John's Gospel is that He is God. The Word was God. And now here we come to the very end of John's Gospel. Verse 20 represents the end of the narrative itself. Verse 21 is kind of like an epilogue. So here we are at the very end of John's Gospel story. And once again, the question is, who is Jesus? Boldly, Thomas confesses for us, He's my Lord and my God. Now there's actually a point to this. In, in ancient writing, writers would often use what's called an inclusio, uh, to emphasize a point. Use a little Latin, you'll think I've read something somewhere. Um, and here's what an inclusio does. Inclusio means that you put something at the beginning of a document, of a writing, and then you come back toward the end of that same writing or section and you, you, you say the same thing, sometimes with the same words, sometimes with different words. You say it here, then you have the content, and then you say it again. And for them it was like putting brackets around the whole thing for emphasis. What you're saying in that is, this is my whole point, make sure you get it. And here, that main point, John is saying, make sure you get it, is that Jesus is God. And so from the beginning of John's Gospel, the Word was with God, the Word was God, to the end of the Gospel, my Lord and my God, we're meant to see, oh, He's God. (laughs) He's not just the Savior sent from God, He is God come to save. 
This is a bold confession. But second, this is not only a bold confession of Christ's deity, it is also a personal confession. Notice that. Notice Thomas doesn't just say, Jesus is deity in some philosophical sense. Now notice this is very personal to him. You are my Lord and my God. Very much like David confesses in Psalm 63.1, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. This has become personal for Thomas. He is drawing near to Christ in new faith. Again, strong echo of Psalm 31 verse 14. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say to you, you are my God. It's personal to Him. Has it ever become personal for you? Have you ever moved from a mere theological confession about Christ, like when we say the Apostles' Creed, to a personal embrace of Christ by faith and alone? It's all the difference in the world between those things. The demons can confess a doctrine. They can't embrace that doctrine savingly. Is this personal for you? So that now He's not just a God out there, He is your God. He's not just a Lord to be acknowledged in some way, but He's your Lord whom you love and obey. Again, Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead you will be saved. It is by faith in Christ alone that we are saved. But then notice this also. Notice that Jesus accepts Thomas' Thomas's bold confession of His deity and His worship. Notice in verse 29 that there is no rebuke when he confesses him as my Lord and my God. There's no redirect. He doesn't say, oh, I'm sorry, Thomas, you know, you've really misunderstood me. You shouldn't be calling me God. I'm, I'm just a man. Well, there's nothing like that. Now, later in the book of Revelation, John himself, the author of this gospel, when he sees an angel, falls at his feet to worship and is immediately rebuked. Revelation 22, verse 8, he says, I fell down at the feet of the angel who showed me these things, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. No, worship God. Can you imagine if someone tried to fall at the feet of one of the prophets like Elijah? Fire from heaven would burn them to a crisp just that minute. They wouldn't put up with it. Because God's holiness and perfection and uniqueness has to be honored. But there's none of that here. There's none of that here. Because Christ is God. To worship Him is the most appropriate thing in the universe. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Right? Echoes throughout the book of Revelation. Thomas is just getting a head start on that. But then notice, and this is really important, notice there is something given specifically, not just to Thomas, but to us here. Look at verse 29. Jesus said to Thomas, So you believed in me because you've seen me. And that's really good. That is a commendation. It's a bit of a rebuke, but it's a commendation. But blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. 
Now here's what's interesting. As I say, this is a, a rebuke to Thomas. It, it's a very gentle rebuke, but it is still a rebuke. Because Thomas should have believed based on the testimony of the other apostles. Their word should have been enough for him. But he wasn't. But remember, Thomas also is an apostle. Thomas also is one of that band of chosen men Jesus is going to send to the world. And so Jesus, in mercy and grace, goes ahead and gives Thomas this face-to-face, personal, physical encounter with him raised from the dead. And that's important because Thomas will then go on from that encounter and carry this witness of Jesus as an apostle must, early church tradition tells us, all the way to India. Because you see, that's what the apostles were there for. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection for the faith of others. They were, to, they were sent by Christ to carry the news to others. And Thomas is commissioned to that. And so running on the fuel of this encounter, he will go and die a missionary martyr's death in India for the faith of the people there and for the glory of God. That was Thomas. What about you and me? We're not apostles. We haven't seen Jesus in the flesh. I never have. You come tell me later you did, I'm probably not going to believe you. In all likelihood, we never will. Not till we get home to glory, then we'll see Him face to face. Or He returns and we meet Him in the air. But notice what Christ says here. Notice the special blessing He promises to us, even us, who have never seen Jesus the way Thomas did, and yet through the testimony of Thomas and the others, we now believe. Blessed are those who have not seen, as Thomas has seen, and yet have believed. Blessed! Blessed! He says... You who are in the men's class going through, at least you were, going through the Beatitudes ought to recognize that word because it's exactly the same word, Greek word makurios, that Jesus uses in those blesseds. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek and so forth. And it's a special word Jesus uses on rare occasions that means you are in a blessed situation because God has put you in the place to receive a special grace and favor from God. God has put you in a place where now you will get to know God. And so despite appearances to the contrary, Jesus says, you and I sitting here this morning are in a really good place. We are in a blessed place because we are in the place to know and experience God's faithful kindness to us personally through faith in Christ. Blessed are you, dear Christian. Why? Because you have taken God at His Word and believed the message despite not having seen Him. Because you believe the testimony of these men who did see Him, who went before you and proclaimed this gospel and passed it down for 2,000 years, and you have taken hold of this Christ by faith, and that has given you access to Him that is real and permanent and eternal. Blessed are you because you believed. Peter declares this blessing wonderfully in 1 Peter 1, verse 8 and 9. He says to us, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Friend, that is the joy that comes to those who believe by faith based on the testimony of of these apostles. 
They were there for us. They received these face-to-face encounters with Christ for us and for our faith that we might hear and believe. Have you? Have you come to believe? Well, come to Christ through His Word. Bring to Him all your struggles and doubts and fears and questions. He is not afraid of a single one of those. But set your heart on the saving promise of His Gospel. We're going to end this section next week in verse 30 and 31. But look where John immediately goes. After saying to us, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed... He goes on, verse 30, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of these disciples, right? those who were standing there on our behalf. Lots of things. They aren't even written in this book. There's so much I can't even try to tell you. But verse 31 says, But these things are written. This testimony of the Gospel is written so that, here you come, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, by faith in Him, promised in this Gospel, you may have life in His name. Father, we are grateful for the testimony that You have passed down for our good through these men You chose to work through. We are not there with them. We haven't stood where they stood. We haven't encountered Christ personally, and until He returns, we won't. But we've encountered the sure word of testimony that You empowered them to give. And I would ask that You would enable us to receive the blessing promised here because we do believe that testimony. We are staking our lives upon it. It's been confirmed for us. It's been seen not only in the lives of these men, but in the lives of Christians for the last 2,000 years. You have healed the broken. You have redeemed the unredeemable. You have cleansed the filthy. You have brought to yourself the the struggling and, and, and broken and knitted them back together and made them yours and used them for your glory. And we ask that you would do that here. That you would draw us to yourself. That you would cause us through this confession and following Christ as Lord to see these doubts and unbelief melt away as we embrace Christ fully by faith and follow Him not only to the end of our days on earth but into eternity forever in His presence. For it is in His name we pray. Amen.